0: Welcome to Laughter For All. It's the podcast with Comedian Nazareth. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Laughter For All podcast. I'm Comedian Nazareth here in the studios in Corona, California. Yes, for the first time in living in Corona, I'm really embarrassed to tell people where I'm from. I'm not embarrassed. I'm actually scared to tell them. People are really, really scared. I can tell you that because I... Uh, I flew eight times in the last, uh, four days. So people are scared. People are putting masks on and all that. So, but, uh, let me tell you what happened last week. Uh, I was in at the NRB, the National Religious Broadcasters in Nashville at the Gaylord Resort. And, um, it was wonderful. We had some encouragement from, uh, I think, uh, one the, the chairman of the, NRB, she was saying that, you know what, if you're in ministry, you are going to get persecuted a little bit. So get ready for that and be prepared for that. But, uh, and then William Barr, the attorney general came and spoke and he was very optimistic about what's going on in our nation. So, Hey, I'm not political. I don't know what's going on in the political scene, but that's always, I love people who are encouraging and, are, and happening. And then, um, I came home on Friday and right away Saturday morning flew into Albuquerque, New Mexico. I drove to Los Alamos. Los Alamos is a, is the a highest concentration of PhDs in the United States because they work at the Los Alamos lab. I can tell you, I was glowing i was literally glowing that's that's how you can feel the nuclear things in your body but anyway we we did the uh, a gala a fundraising gala and we, they were so happy they they sold more tickets than they thought and they booked me back on the spot so i'm always happy when the clients are very happy but uh anyway so this is what happened last week next week friday and saturday friday i'm doing a A church, a small church, laughter for all. Sometimes we go to churches that cannot, never afford a comedian. And we're doing a big laughter for all for them, uh, for their event. Then Saturday, uh, we're raising money for missions at New Covenant in Fresno. Sunday, I leave to Maui. For the increase conference for a week, then come back and I have a men's conference next Saturday. We'll talk about it later. But anyway, I'm so excited. I could not, I did not think I could get this guy in the studio. I did not. So I'm really amazed. And, uh, so his name is Pete McGowan. Pete is one of the most creative people I know. And there's only two people I think of is uh, Phil Cook and Pete McGowan, and uh, he's here with us. He took the time to be here, so welcome to the show, Pete. Thank you for being with us.
1: Ah, thank you for having me.
0: Wonderful. Now, uh, what keeps you creative? What are you? What are you? What keeps you creative?
1: Ah, uh, man, that's a, a interesting uh, broad question. Yeah, you know, I think inherently, I think uh, my creator, God. Uh, Keeps me creative. I, I believe God made everyone creative. It's just to what degree are we able to uh, have that freedom to express it. But you know, you put uh, put any kid in a room with crayons, you'll see really quickly that they're creative. And uh, I think it's a there's a whole separate dialogue and story about creativity and design. But I think most people are creative. It's just whether they feel the freedom to uh, express that creativity. Now, is this. Where are you at
0: right now? Is this something you dreamed of? Is this something you were, you were,
1: you know, like when you were little, where were you born? So I was actually born in Downey, California. Downey, California. Yeah. My my dad was in the army though. And shortly thereafter, like by the time I, before I was one, we started moving around a lot as my dad got stationed in different places. And I spent, uh, till I was 12 years old, primarily overseas in, in, uh, in Europe, Germany, so, ah. nine, nine years in Germany. So, I, I kind of grew up abroad.
0: Were you in Bavaria?
1: Bavaria, yes. Yeah. Yes,
0: because yeah. every year I go to Bavaria and do the yeah. army post. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, have, have you seen the tower where Hitler used to stand and talk to people? Yeah, yeah. Nuremberg,
1: the Nuremberg, Nuremberg, think, yeah, Nuremberg and, and Vilsic. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yes, I go there every year. Mm-hmm. I love, yeah. I love, that's awesome. And, yeah. and when did you come here and stayed here? In so,
1: we moved to California in 1984. Yep. Eighty four. Yep.
0: That's when I came to the states. Oh, and what were, were did you go to college here in California?
1: I did. I did. I graduated, and I uh, ended up at Cal Poly. Yeah. What did you study? So uh, I started off as an architectural major, uh-huh. and uh, but then, uh, luckily, uh, you know, in the early nineties, uh, during the dot com boom, I got swayed into technology. So I know
0: so, you had your yeah. own tech company. Are you sure, it's called what? In- Thinkware. Sure. Thinkware.
1: What Thinkware? Thinkware. Yeah, Doug Houston actually started it. So he got me my first job out of high school with IBM. And then uh, when he left uh, and started Thinkware, I went to work for him. And then when he went into the ministry full-time kind of – and
0: he's a I pastor now know. at Crossroads, where you serve as a board director. You know what? So I, I was for
1: a long time for about ten years, but I rolled off a few years ago. And,
0: but you were his uh, boss for.
1: <laughs> I, I was never really his boss.
0: So. so you were in that big wave of the mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, all this dot coms, and uh, and then what made you change to start uh, playing Joe Studios, which does a lot of creative work? With-
1: yeah, yeah. So actually, a it, uh, it pretty. <laughs> Gosh, that's a deep question to ask really quickly. Well, go uh, for it. So basically, uh, I was doing the IT stuff, the Outsource IT Managed Services, and uh, did really well with that and uh kind of even rewinding back to my story when i met doug hughes and i was in high school uh when uh you know in 1984 when we landed here in corona uh my dad actually left our family he abandoned us oh, I'm sorry. and uh oh no it actually ended up working out really good <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay so he was actually a really bad guy he was not uh, a very good man have you not heard this story before no you know, i would there? love yeah. to hear yeah. it because
0: it could encourage some mom or some yeah uh... yeah uh,
1: so um for some reason i thought i shared this with you before but no. um yeah he was uh, if you ever seen the Maybe catch me if you can. Okay. That totally could have been my dad. He was like a, he was a, like a professional con man. Um, and it, which is why we moved around a lot as kids. He would set up cons and leave. But when we landed in Corona in 1984, shortly thereafter, he actually left us. And my mom, she's from Vietnam. She didn't even have a high school education. Uh-huh. And it was all she could do was, you know, worked as hard as she could to keep us together. And I remember she would go to work here in Corona. We had all the old lemon groves. She'd yeah. go, you know, into the lemon groves, picking lemons for the day labors, come home with her hands bleeding. I remember uh-huh. one day she's like, you know, if we just keep the house, we'll be okay. So I went from, you know, relatively like, you know, 16 years old, uh, we were on welfare for a little bit and we, you know, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. My mom uh, worked really hard, uh, got through high school, went on to college. I got into IT, made a lot of money. I mean, um, and Doug taught me early on about diversification. It wasn't just about going and buying, you know, a fancy car, but what was it like? Um, to be able to invest. My mom always said, you know, when we were, you know, really poor, she, I was like, oh, if we only had a million dollars, we'd be okay. And she, she would laugh at me and she'll, no, if you can't manage a little money, you can't manage a lot. So she really challenged me between her and, uh, Doug. Um, you know, what would I do with the money that I did start making? And I ended up investing a lot of it and everything from real estate to stock markets to different, uh, d- different types of things rather than just spending it on fun things. And uh, as God would kind of lay things out, I was set – by the time I was 26, I was kind of on a trajectory to be financially independent by the time I was 30. And I thought I had kind of conquered the world.
0: And were you? Yeah. Yeah were you at 26 yeah. what is yeah. it like yeah. what is it like to be complete you know to be at an age and this I, I know a lot of people some have money a lot of my fans either have or don't have what is it like to be independently wealthy which means yeah. what what is it
1: like how does it feel what are you <laughs> well I think it's all relative and and I wouldn't say we were wealthy um, I, I think uh, you know a, a friend of mine once said when we were in high school the less you have the freer you are so you know the, the idea of, of not being in debt Gave me a lot of freedom. The idea that you know, if I didn't have all these car payments, I didn't have all these you know monthly bills added up, I could go to Europe for a month or two months and not worry about you know doing things. So it wasn't even so much that I was wealthy and had a lot of money, is I just had a lot of freedom, and I wasn't tethered to do um, a, a lot of things. That a lot of mistakes my other friends had gone down, and um, between my mom, Doug Hughes, and a few other people that really taught me good lessons, uh, I was able to have that freedom. So, but I wouldn't I even today. I wouldn't call my Self wealthy. I mean, uh, you look at you know the wealth in this world that the top one percent right. have. I mean, I think everyone in America is pretty wealthy uh, when, you com- when you compare I mean if you have a refrigerator you have running water you have a, uh, a toilet you have an air conditioner you're better off than ni- was it 95% of the rest of the I'm
0: world. from the Middle East we don't need most of these things but
1: <laughs> but yes. so uh, where's mom now yeah so she lives with my brother Ed so I'm one of three brothers and uh, the middle brother in, in, in kind of a good uh, Asian style we are, take care of our parents are you taking so, care of her well I try, to, of try course to she's an incredibly she independent out. woman but yeah she de- definitely was When we were growing up, she was always like, I'm going to live with my boys. And when did you meet your wife, Jennifer? So I actually met her in high school. Yeah. I, that's kind of a funny story. I, I, anyways, but I, I have another friend who pointed her out and she was beautiful and way out of my league and I stalked her and she wouldn't have anything to do with me. <laughs> so, okay. so, but we were friends in high school. And then later on in, in, in college, uh, like, uh, she'd actually finished college. I, I got the guts and the nerve to ask her out on a date and that was a whole funny story. How long have you guys um, been married? Oh, uh, we've been married 22 years now. Yeah. Good 22 way. years. Yeah. We have three kids and.
0: Now you're the yeah. IT originally creative guy. Who's what is she
1: like? Does she work? Does she she, she's a stay at home mom now. Uh, originally, she graduated with a, a degree in psychology and early childhood development. She was a, an educator a teacher uh, for before we had kids. But that was even like when we got married, though. I remember early discussions. She grew up uh, in a, a household with a working mom, working dad. And we just made a decision early on that, you know, if we had kids, we wanted her to stay at home. And if it meant that we lived in an apartment as long as we were debt free that was something we were kind of uh, focused on see I'm big on that my
0: wife Maha never never worked I mean she worked Mm -hmm. from home part time but you know, she doesn't have to, but she's she mm-hmm. stays home. even when we didn't have any money mm-hmm.
1: she still stayed home. So now what would be okay? But to be you, clear, she works nonstop. <laughs> yes, of course. It is, <laughs> yeah, it's right. like uh, yeah. I think she was, she was mentioning it the other day, I think she gets a break from eight PM to ten PM when I'm home getting the kids to bed. See, That's ever since she- I
0: met you you already you already you always have things in control and order What is the typical (laughs) argument between you and Jennifer? What would it be like a recurring argument? So it's –
1: (laughs) so are you familiar with Enneagram, right? Are you familiar with the Enneagram? Enneagram. Uh, Yeah, the Enneagram, uh, like the nine personality types. Okay. Have you not heard of that? I've
0: done, yeah, yeah, those tests,
1: yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit more than a test. Pete's, I got exposed to it about 10 years ago through Pete Scazzaro in emotionally healthy spirituality or emotionally healthy discipleship. And, um, I've done a lot of different personality tests and different things and they're, they're really useful. Um, just to kind of diagnose, uh, things. But I, I, I'm a big fan of the Enneagram because it gets behind your motives for things. Mm-hmm. And uh, understanding, you know, kind of your greatest strengths, also your greatest weakness. So in that, there's these nine personality types. And the, I believe there are some spiritual applications to it. Fruits of the Spirit kind of being one of them. But the whole idea that there's this kind of teeter-totter between, you know, grace uh, or like uh, peace and sin, whatever, and anger, basically. Oh. Peace and anger kind of uh, are teeter-totter between each other. And um, in the Enneagram type, there's nine different types. My type is that of what's called the Challenger and mm. basically, it, it's what gets behind my motivation for things. And I'm just—I'm always up for a challenge. Uh, when when people say you can't do something, I'm usually the first one to not you know, not, <laughs> not be bright enough to be like, oh, maybe you shouldn't do it. I'm like, there has to be a way. Come on, there has to be a way. Um, and there, there's a lot of uh, th- that Enneagram type of aid is known has been identified with like Martin Luther King, um, was it Winston Churchill? A lot of mm. other kind of uh, famous people who've like take, taken on challenges. But it's also seen and identified with like Adolf. Hitler, <laughs> you oh. know, where he took a challenge of you know Nazi Germany being under uh, the, the you know the Great Depression and used it. For evil, mm. and uh, so that, that's my thing. Is so I can uh, get into arguments very quickly. Uh, I have fun getting into arguments and just you know debating with people, whether I win or lose. It's just fun for me to kind of hash it's it out. it's a Challenge, yeah, yeah, it, it, and it's fun, and I and I don't get my feelings hurt. My wife, um, her personality type sits on the top of the enneagram, uh, that of a nine, which is a peacemaker, and uh, so that's she. What I am, yeah. So she just she's easy to get along with. She can identify with just about everyone. Everyone in the room. I walk in. I'm pretty oblivious. I, I I lack tact. I have to be very uh, like I have to force myself to try and be aware of things. Mm. But um, but she's very good at just being like aware of uh, everything around her. But the problem with that is a lot of times uh, you know she won't always say what she wants or. De- uh, declare those types of things. So uh, for the first ten years of our marriage, like we never had fights. I thought it was great. You know? Yes, but, but really because- she was. But she was really frustrated. So it wasn't until actually later on that she was uh, that we were both healthier. And I would make it safer for her to. Eat. Well, even now, you know, I think it's it's hard because I'm I'm very like. Was that, that bother you? And I'll just say it and get it off my chest.
0: Now, how can people get into that Enneagram test? Where can they get it? So, uh, is it expensive? a couple of things.
1: And, uh, there are free tests and there's a thing that you get what you pay for, but ultimately it's not about the tests. It really is about, um, there's a few, and actually Sandals Church locally, Pastor Matt Brown does a great, yes. he does a great series on it. And then not only does he have a great message on it, uh, each of the nine types, Afterwards, uh, on the Monday morning, they do the debrief, Well he'll kind of have a conversation with staff members or different key volunteers on the types. But the most powerful thing about the Enneagram, it's not about taking a test because you can you can trick a test. You can make it say or sound any way you want. Right. but it's yeah, it's really a tool for you to read through and see what resonates with yourself. And help you understand your own motives and what do you do in health or in stress. Um, Then the other helpful thing is when you are dealing with somebody else and they understand the same kind of constructs or they are able to Mm self-identify – that helps equip me to be able to have a dialogue. So one of my stories within our design studios, I remember I got a call from a client one day and, um, I, said, I think this is funny. It's not funny because someone's in tears, but, uh, but that's I, that's fine. Yeah. It's
0: called laughter for all podcasts. Yeah. But,
1: uh, you know, someone calls, uh, up and, and, uh, they gave me some great feedback. They're like, Oh, Pete, it was great. You guys hit it out of the park. All these next time, if you guys did this a little bit differently, we think it'd be even better. So I walk in the room and the person who dealt with the project wasn't there. Right? But I walk into a project management room, uh, with all the producers in there, and there was just two people in there, and, so again, they weren't related to the project. But I was just kind of excited. So I tell them about this call. I'm like, oh yeah, it's so great. And in my mind, I'm I'm like, you know, telling them that yeah, everything went great. But if we just changed it this time, next time, it'd be even better. And I walk out, and about 10, 15 minutes later, one of the people come to me and go, Pete, thank you. Just yeah, just for being clear, concise. Now we know what the win is, it's so awesome. And I'm like patting myself on the back. I'm like, yeah, great, I'm such a great I'm a great leader. <laughs> leader. And about 15 minutes later. The other person comes in the room like in tears, like, am I going to get fired? Did I mess something up? They were thinking I was being passive aggressive. (laughs) I'm like – no, like, but it, but it was really what, what it came down to was there are two different personality types. One of them, like, really, they're, uh, you know, they, they enjoy criticism. <laughs> you believe that there are certain people. I'm one of them who criticism makes us better, makes us stronger. Everything could be good. There's other people, um, an Enneagram type one, who's a perfectionist. Their own inner voice has. They're harder on themselves than anyone ever needs to be. And they're going to be harder on themselves. Is that the peacemakers? Is no, that, that's not. Oh. That's it's a perfectionist. Yeah. And they're able to. Um, and, and yeah. And if everything isn't just right. So even just the space that they were in, um no matter what I said, because it wasn't just right, they would just beat themselves up over oh. it. So that, that opened me up to realizing I, I just have to be, um, careful with how I communicate, mm-hmm. especially when there's, uh, criticism and it's just my role in the company. Um, because, you know, I have that leadership role. I just have to be more ginger about it. If I want a place that's safe for people right. to.
0: Tell to me do. about the company, Pledge, So you left the IT business. You worked for Johnson Johnson, all mm-hmm. these companies, and then you left it and then, when did you guys start playing Joe?
1: Yeah. So we actually got started in October of 2001, just after 9-11. Ooh. And yeah, and it got started. Uh, uh, my That's uh bro- good yeah. to start right after. <laughs> That's my joke. It's usually a great time to start a business, you know, yeah. just after 9-11. No, actually, but that was the that was the whole idea is that the world was, you know, going to hell in a handbasket. And we were sitting in a restaurant one night with Mike Foster, my brother Mel, and myself. And Mike just asked this question, like, why if we told the server right now that we were Christians, uh yeah. You know, The first, unless they were a believer, the first thoughts in their head will have nothing to do with who Jesus is. It's going to be like, great, cheap tip, homophobic, judgmental, all these things. They know more for what we're against than what we're for. Why Mm -hmm. is that? And my brother Mel was just, you know, he had spent about 10 years with the Walt Disney Company and he was just very quick to be like, yeah, that's because the church has forgotten how to tell its story. It thinks story is told one day a week on a Sunday morning. Um, but the reality is that, um, story is told seven days a week. Story is told, you know, by everyone all the time. Disney and the Walt Disney Company. There's a saying that everything speaks, and uh, that and that's what we started this company around is this idea of helping people tell their story beyond just the normal traditional words or oral or written traditions. Mm. But how do we actually help people tell their story using design? And so there's kind of three areas of design that we look at that are pretty broad. But when we look at modern branding, you look at something like Starbucks or you know Tesla or anything like that that. They don't use traditional marketing advertising vehicles. What do they do? It really falls down to these three kind of brand experiences. What we say is, you know, branding or design that walks away with people, kind of like brand communications, but it's not about logos, fonts and colors. It really is about an emotional response. So how do you feel when you say laughter for all? How do you feel when you say Christian, when you say Disney, Apple, Nike, Starbucks? That emotional response really is what the brand is. The, the second area is design that doesn't walk away with people, what we call spatial storytelling. And we're actually a licensed architectural firm, but, you know, creating spaces. So you, you've been to Crossroads in yes. that environment, or where, whether it's children's museums or, you know, um, visitor centers, you know, guest experience things. It, you know, it, being intentional about those spaces and how people feel after they, you know, enter into one of those. Um, and then the third one is design uh, that people interact with, and that gets into web media, mobile app development, uh, social media campaigns, and stuff. But what we look at is not so much what are the tactical check boxes but you know what are the emotional responses that people have and when you look at an organization like Chick-fil-A what sets them apart from like uh, McDonald's you know they're very much about the overall holistic experience the guest experience and that's why they say you know it, you know it's my pleasure Do you choose,
0: do companies choose that emotional response before the branding or after? Or do you guys help them find that?
1: So uh, it's either way. So sometimes we have clients that really are pretty attuned with who they are and what they're doing. They just need help broadening that vocabulary to express it so we do work with the walt disney company they're very clear on what their mission is and how they are working uh you know they want to make you know help families make memories help people make memories and everything falls into that um but then there are organizations that don't work with uh, uh, understand that or they're they've been able to do uh their job but it's hard to see the force from the trees so we'll take them through a process to try and Uncover that truth behind them and understand what so the
0: story is. So, who's your client? Your typical average client? Who would that be?
1: I'm not sure we have a typical average client. <laughs> we actually very intentionally this talks about creativity because mm-hmm. uh, we've been doing this for you know over 18 years now, and uh, every about about every five years we've had uh, we've done our own internal like strategic planning. We'll bring an outsider in to help us kind of look at things, and almost every time. They pretty much tell us, man, you guys would make so much money if you got rid of these like 80 percent of the clients that are just, you know, distractions and focused on these 20 percent of the clients that you're making the whole 80-20 principle. 80 percent of your money comes from 20 percent of your clients. Right. The problem is I don't think we could serve those clients well. If we didn't have the uh, diversity and divergent thinking that comes from all the other clients. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, w- w- but by nature of our business, what helps keep us great about two thirds of our workloads is going to be nonprofit related, a lot of causes, and that's everything from, uh, is it um, you know, missions organizations, uh, a lot of churches, uh, you know, the, uh, Children's Hunger Fund, uh, organizations that deal with human trafficking, um, you know, working with uh, disabled veterans or veterans that have served first responders, everything like that, all the way through to um, we have about a third of our clients are going to be for profit clients that are like, you know, aerospace clients or uh, coffee shops, restaurants, Miguel's. Uh, yeah, they keep you M- going Miguel's
0: because the, yeah. the nonprofits don't have a lot. So mm-hmm. let's say someone has, okay, you said, you know, I have a, f- a vision from God. or I have I have this idea. I want to start this business or I want to do this mm-hmm. a nonprofit. I want to start a nonprofit. And if they're listening, okay, w- they come to you, Pete. Mm-hmm. What, what would be your first advice to them or what would be your advice to them?
1: Yeah. So I, I kind of – usually I kind of go through our process a little bit and just trying to understand um, everyone is unique. Everyone is different. So even though we have – it's kind of like having a recipe. Even though I might have a recipe to cook with. If I go over to someone's house, they may not have or they probably won't have that exact the exact ingredients that I need. So the idea that I know how to cook, but then we have to adapt and know what recipes to pull together. But usually it starts with just trying to understand where people have come from, what their unique background is, uh, and then kind of taking things through that uh, a storytelling process, which literally it's characters, plots and settings. You know, characters, who's your target audience, who you're trying to engage them. Uh, sometimes those characters are the people within your organization. The plots, you know, actually mapping out intentionally, like what is that pathway that they're going to go through? And do they end where you want them to, to mm-hmm. land? And then the setting is understanding the environments that it happens, whether it's a physical or digital environment. And, um, yeah, so we'll try and walk them through that. And
0: how long that process takes from they so, come first, they come to you
1: until they're running. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's really it's it just depends again, being uh, kind of a, a little bit different. We usually start everything. It's it, it. the minimum process is half a day just to sit down with us. And there are people who meet with us for half a day. Then they, uh, you know, they leave and they're equipped to kind of work better than they would have if they never met us to begin with. But then there are clients like Miguel's. Miguel's was one of our first three clients 18 years ago. And they're still mm-hmm. clients today. And we're still able to help them. Yeah. You know, grow and we're, they're looking at expanding over the next few years. And we've had a broad range that we've been able to help them grow. Um There's this well, one aerospace client that we have. We We took them from 50 million to $300 million and, you know, Uh, grew quite a bit, but, um, it's, it's, uh, pretty exciting, but you know, different clients have different applications right now. We're doing some work with, uh, um, Walt Disney Company, Pixar, and stuff like that. That's it's dealing with a a set of issues that are haven't really been tackled before. But in the end, the way that we're we're approaching it, it's a storytelling solution. And within their organization, how do we help them them tell stories? Because especially when you're dealing with fast-moving organizations where um, training is done via an oral tradition Mm -hmm. through mentors, which is really great. Um, You know, how do you actually use technology like leverage and accelerate that?
0: Well, technology have changed and it's Mm -hmm. getting faster, and people's attention span is getting mm-hmm. shorter and shorter is that good for your company or bad for your company is that uh, how how can you tell the do you have to tell the story faster now
1: mm-hmm. and Yeah. You know what? Uh, Honestly, uh, I think there's certain principles. I think just talking about technology, that's a whole separate uh, conversation we have. But I don't think it's an accident that the greatest storyteller of all time, when you look back, you know, at how he told stories, sometimes they're very short. I think he would have been great on Twitter. Jesus, yes. But, you know, the only time he ever wrote anything down. So he was an educated man. He was a scholar. He could read and write. The only time he wrote anything down, you know was in jerk something that was temporary he very well could have used technology and you know wrote uh you know paper to pen uh, whatever and, and put words down but i think it was not i don't think it was an accident that he did not do that and I think it let the gospel and the story be independent of technology as technology evolved. And really the gospel has been on the, the backbone and brought continuity to a lot of um, uh, and creativity. When you look at the Renaissance, the greatest period of creativity that mankind has ever known, a lot of it was how do you express this timeless story and this message? So I, I believe it's our calling to use technology in a relevant way. That's what Jesus did 2000 years ago. And so we continue to do that today. But I think – definitely things are getting worse as far as attention spans i think things are accelerating uh you know but yeah there, there's whole other dialogues we can have on that but i think uh, there's certain truths that are just in, uh so know, how do that. you keep
0: yourself fresh with that and that's what I want to know. I told my, my fans and listeners, I, you know, Pete's going to – how do you keep things fresh and creative and knowing mm-hmm. what's going on? Even at one point, I remember I came to you and I said to help with some with the website and you said, well, this color is, is big right now or stuff. How do you stay up to date with yeah. all that?
1: Well, some of it and, – and the, the, certain things like color theory really doesn't change that much. And I think certain colors are trendy. Uh, but this is something we talk to clients about, especially when we build space and they invest a lot of money into it. One of the core things is we believe timeless design is based in story. No one goes to Disneyland and says, man, this is 65 years old. Gosh, I mean, you know, like Notre Dame, it's like, you know, hundreds of years old. When you have a, a solid story, that's what allows things to come together. So, you know, we're, we're working with some clients now that are going on near almost 20 years that we designed stuff 20 years ago, and it still feels fresh. And people go like, oh, yeah. You know, and it's because it's based in story. That is one of the key things. So, um, you know, we just try to always come, go back to that idea of story. And uh, it's so easy to Put things onto this assembly line approach and forget the story. And you're so concerned about the tactical outcomes, you forget what the story is. And that's when things get stale. That's when things get stagnant. Um, so, anyways, but- do you guys keep like? Do you do a blog? Oh, which blog do you
0: read? Like, there's some. Is there someone out there that you go? I need to know what this guy is writing, what he's saying, because. He knows what they're, or she knows what she's talking yeah,
1: about. Yeah, you know, I have a pretty diverse thing. I definitely, um, yeah, there's certain authors like, I definitely like Simon Sinek is, uh, he just released a new book yes, uh, called I'm, Infinite Game, which I think, uh, it, and it talks about the paradigm thoughts and a lot of this stuff. Uh, Seth, Godin's, uh, a, a great guy as well. There's a lot of pastors that I, I, I love to follow and, uh, read and keep up with too. But, um, but yeah, for me, and this actually speaks into creativity. I think, um, you know, when you look at the 10 commands i think probably one of my favorite ones is you know to to you know observe the sabbath and to keep the sabbath the trick about sabbath though is you really have to make sure you work the first part 6 days yeah kind of 6 days and then uh and then take a break and i think some people are confused with sabbath and leisure and they leave you know they really don't know how to work so they really don't know how to it take time off but those um the whole thing of just working 80 hours a week and going nonstop and the quickest way to do something is to stay at it and not taking those breaks. Um, I think it really, you know, it, it's hard to be creative in those times. yeah uh, you know, I think inspiration comes at, you know, different times, but I think your ability to kind of take breaks and rest and whether it's a nap in the middle of the day or taking it the day off, um, I think that's it's really important.
0: I know you're a great dad. You're very involved in your daughter's doing great things i haven't been following up the last few months but she's what is your typical day you get up in the morning what happens with you <laughs> what time and what do you do first
1: yeah do the nature of my personality i my schedule is all <laughs> over the place yeah so i mean regrettably this the beginning of 2020 has been a little bit non-stop i mean uh you know for the first 11 weeks i've been on the road at least once or twice uh one or two days a week for the first 11 weeks so last just over a week ago I was in Australia so that was oh, yeah so it, it was pretty different so um and I'm bouncing back and forth I mean just last week I just got back I was in uh uh Indianapolis and in DC so uh you know it, it just depends I I need to make sure I try and get enough rest but I would say when I am home yeah. usually I try to get up and uh was that? uh my kids are pretty they're all pretty much older now so I I'm, I try to make sure I'm up in time to you know see them off to school and you know have spend a little bit of time breakfast with them, if I get to take them to school, I I, I love to be able to do that. But usually my days like in and going with phone calls and meetings by eight o'clock, mm-hmm. um, and usually all I'll, my days when I am in Corona and when I am in in town is it's pretty, um, yeah, pretty pretty much meetings, and those meetings can really just kind of vary. But then I'll try and be intentional about the time that I then get online to do emails. Um, yeah, I try not to do emails just a little bit all day, every day. Um, a few years ago, I pulled off of social media. I used to be on like, you know, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and I would post. You just pulled off. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of like a drug addict, just kind of quitting cold turkey. Yeah. <laughs> I went from, uh, one of my cousins one time was like, oh my gosh, you post like 30 times a day. And I was like, and it was almost like a high. When you post something, you get a hundred likes within the first 15 minutes. I didn't get it. It'd be like, wait, what's going on here? Um, and then I just realized it just wasn't being productive for me yeah. and it really wasn't helping me be creative. It was actually just – it was artificially giving me a fulfillment in areas that really didn't matter. Uh, my, my role in things, I, I, if I have time, I need to a, a, you know, – I want to pour it into my family. I want to pour it into the team members that I get to work with. And it's really easy to get distracted by just what's keeping me busy. So I try not to be busy. But. Now,
0: how do you teach your kids to be creative? What do
1: you do? Oh, man, you know, I, I try to try to celebrate uh, just having fun and uh, divergent thinking, like, you know, and letting them make mistakes. I think, uh, you know, trying to make it feel like it's OK to fail, although it is really hard because uh, I can be so critical on things, Um, you know, and depending on their personality types, you know, again, back to the Enneagram, I've learned that I have to treat my kids differently um, and not preferential treatment or anything like that. I just need to know that, you know, certain ones I can be criti- a little bit more critical of and uh, they can take it a little mm-hmm. bit differently. And the other ones I don't need to be as critical. I need to be m- more uh, supporting in a coach type role. But, um, but yeah. One yeah, time I, I, I was
0: at your house and your son's room looks like uh, Star Wars. Yeah, the right. whole, the bed was like the Millennium Falcon. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's
1: kind of, a little, it's a little internet famous. It's made us around on Reddit and stuff, but yeah. You did? Yeah. And, uh, and, and the quick story there is for the first, uh, you know, for about eight years, he shared a room with his sister. So he had like, you know, yellow, uh, uh seashells and curtains and everything. And we added onto the house. Uh, but we had, a uh, when we had our third, kid, uh, he moved in and shared a room with his sister. So we actually built him a room. And as a part of that, when he was 10 years old, I'm like, I'll build you any room you want, as long as it's the room I always wanted. <laughs> no. And I always wanted a Star Wars room, and luckily he did too. And I remember when we built it, um, we used a lot of what we call found items, parts that were laying around my workshop and everything. But we, since we do theme fabrication, I, I did have access to quite a few talented people. But, um, but yeah, <laughs> if you Google search Millennium Falcon Star Wars bedroom, yeah, it, it'll pretty much come up. Um, and it's been, Yeah, it's the highest form of flattery. A lot of people have copied it, including Pottery Barn. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? At least that's that's what certain people told me. Well, I would uh, believe
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, your, your daughter's how old now? She's 19
1: and she's at Concordia. Concordia. What is she studying? She is a theater major and, uh, as well as, I think, a minor in business. But yeah, so. Wow. Now, you have, how many employees do you
0: have at Blaine Joe?
1: Um so um I I I it's kind of hard to keep track a little bit, but just over a hundred, I believe.
0: Over a hundred. Yeah. But they're all under 30, right? Are they? No, no, no. no.
1: Yeah. It's, it's that divergent thing. You know, we, we have some responsible people. No, we, we have people who are older as well. You yeah. know,
0: it's funny. I was at, it 10. just
1: looks like it. Yeah. It looks like
0: it. Like everybody's yeah. young. Like, Hey, I work for yeah. Pete. I'm tipping on 50. <laughs> you know, I was at NRB and Phil Cook was talking about creativity and he mm-hmm. said, creativity does not end with age. No, no. You can, you can have a seven year old that's still mm-hmm. as creative. He said, and also he said, you know, creative people have to give them a deadline because otherwise mm-hmm. they will not get anything done. So it's really interesting to come to your to your mm-hmm. offices and see all these young people and they're all busy. They're mm-hmm. working. Yeah. So what? When did you come to Christ?
1: So uh, actually, 1986 at Crossroads in Corona. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah so it was when, we, yeah, when we were on when we were poor, and uh, my my brother Mel, he followed a girl into at high school into a, a Bible study, <laughs> and uh, so he was like the whole flirt to convert thing worked with him, and then he invited me to church, and at first I was like ah, I really don't care, but then I, I there's actually a bigger story there, uh, and seeing his transformation was was a key part of it, but the fun part is I like talking about man they had free food. So <laughs> I was like, dude, they had free pizza, and and for a kid, when uh, you know, I didn't have, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, literally, we were going to school, and uh, I, yeah, I don't. Know. It, what what happened to us then? Nowadays, with child protective services and stuff like that, it's amazing. Yeah, because my mom, she went to take a job down in downtown L.A., and she, we grew up basically kind of life. latchkey kids. Yeah, my mom would go to work on Monday, stay out in L.A. till you know uh, Saturday, come home Saturday afternoon, you know, pay all the bills on Sunday. Cook food for us, go back to work on Monday. And, uh, you know, I was, we were like 12, 14, 16 years old at home alone with no parental supervision. And it was really a miracle. And God kind of, uh, got it, brought us into a local church. And, uh, you know, I would go to school with no lunch money. And we were, before we were on the lunch program and stuff. So I, I was so happy when we started getting the free lunches. Um, but yeah, when I found out I could go to a Bible study and get, you know, pizza or M&Ms, <laughs> I showed up for the food. Pastor's good. listening. Yeah, this is-
0: This is true. This is real. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, for you to
1: get to where you're at right now, that is amazing. That's a, that's an American dream story. It is as God's providence. Yeah. And that, and that was really actually going back to why we started the studio. So what happened was I had, I, I was Doug Hughes and went to industry full time and kind of uh, handed me the reins of Thinkware. And uh, it was a pastor friend who really challenged me one day. I remember after I got married, um, I, I, I got back from Europe. I, my wife and I went there and, um, and, it, it, you know, he's like, how's it going? I'm like, oh, it's amazing. You know, famously said all this stuff, whatever. And, uh, and he's like, wow, is this it all about you. I'm like, I thought it was. <laughs> like that, that's God's providence. And he really challenged me. And he said, you know, I am where I am uh, in life because of godly men like, you know, Doug Hughes and Terry Foster, Jim Evans, who really kind of spoke into me and um, and taught me what it was to be a godly man, you know, a godly husband, a godly business owner. Mm-hmm. And who was I pouring into? Who was I encouraging? And right after that, shortly thereafter, is when Mike Foster and Mel had the idea to start this little design studio. And, uh, and I really saw it as an opportunity to bring on younger guys and uh, interns and mentor them and grow them up and then the first full-time guy uh, Richard, still at the studio today the first full-time intern to leave didn't leave us uh, he, be- he came full-time with us but till after five years that speaks yeah.
0: volumes of mm-hmm. how you guys do your business oh. and I know you do you help a lot of churches a lot of yeah. I've been to mega churches mm-hmm. I'm the comedian I speak mm-hmm. at them and I see you know they know you guys and the design probably mm-hmm. of the church was made by you
1: guys yeah. right? and, and, and you. It's, it's hard to say I mean We've worked with over 600 uh, ministries, churches over the last, like, 18 years. But yeah, some of the largest in America, including, like, Saddleback, you know, Crossroads, uh, was it Life Church? We just, uh, did, but now to say, but it's always hard to say stuff like that, cause then, or, or like, uh, you know, uh, because people go, oh, you guys did everything. We didn't do everything. We did, uh, like, relatively small part. But yeah, there's, we definitely have a lot of favorites, and I, I hate to, you know, yeah, but it, it it's fun. What ticks you off about churches? What gets
0: you angry? Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is a real show. We yep. that's what we pride ourselves. Yeah. We you know this is something you won't say at a Christian radio mm-hmm. show, but we can say it here on the podcast. Yeah,
1: you know what? Uh, 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 so, uh, definitely, yeah. First off, I'm illiterate. So, I, I, I learned how to, uh, I grew up on, on sight reading, so I'm terrible with phonics. So, my son always makes fun of me because I'll, like, I remember I was reading something the other day and I said pterodactyl and he's like, what? It was pterodactyl, but there's uh-huh. a B in front of it. Uh-huh. So, uh, but it always takes me a minute to catch on. But, uh, complacency is definitely something I always mess up on that word complacency. Complacency. Uh, cause I wanted to say uh, their compliance. Uh, but you know, just that the church, um, they become complacent in what they're they're doing. And I think what breaks my heart with a lot of churches is they're stuck on a hamster wheel, uh, a hamster wheel that repeats every week, seven days a week, every Sunday. It's about producing uh, this worship service, which is great. But the thing is, I mean, the church is not the building. It's not that event on Sunday. I mean, the church 200 years ago was the center of creativity. It was the center of community. It was the hospitals. It was the orphanages. It was the schools. Um, the church uh, was the hope for the world, I believe that. And we've allowed the church to get boxed into something that the U.S. federal government has deemed as a nonprofit, meaning we don't make money, And that's completely not what a nonprofit is. It means you don't exist just to make a profit. You still have to make a profit to keep the doors open. Mm -hmm. Um, but you don't have to pay taxes on it. So they, they confuse a tax status with their actual mission and goal. Mm -hmm. And they're on this, this bent of reinventing the wheel every week. And, you know, when we talk about creative organizations, like I don't know of any creative organization, whether you, you call it, you know, Disney, Universal, any TV show, they all go in seasons. They all take breaks. They, a lot of times they understand the Sabbath better than the church does but you know i i think a, a church that's complacent with where they're at and uh, where they're at creatively where they're at telling their story whether you know what they're doing week in week out and they they might kind of like raise a flag but you know taking a step back and kind of remembering what their story is and trying to uh, be intentional about that is probably one of the things i'm really. that's
0: thinking. right because we earlier we were talking uh, during the renaissance the biggest thing was the cre you know uh, yeah, when we were in europe we were in france and london and italy Everything is about Jesus. Jesus is every on the wall, not in the hearts, but mm-hmm. on the walls and the statues. All about Jesus, mm-hmm. and and that's true. That's telling the story was beginning. Now you you guys work with Disney, and you said you work with aerospace company and large companies. And sometimes when you go and do a design or do building, you spend probably weeks with these people. Do you mm. try to share your faith? Do you feel? Do you? And how would you do it? So actually, one of of
1: my favorite uh, clients right now is actually Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Oh, yes. Yeah, and it's a fantastic organization. I think, you know, the premise behind that, and uh, and really there's a lot of different supporters, but really one of my favorite things about it is this idea that the word of god is a two-edged double-edged sword and it it can stand and defend itself um and they've created a place where the just the kind of the facts of the bible are laid out so you're talking about like uh, you know jesus is everywhere in the renaissance and in europe same thing with washington dc you know they have a, they have a uh, going through our godly heritage and understanding the underpinning of What we know is today is freedom. The facts that we've been able to break out of the bonds of slavery and racism, a lot of these, it all comes back to these uh, biblical principles and Christians that help fight for those things. It's kind of hard. It's easy to kind of look back and be like, "Hey, you know, it's it's the sins of the father Mm -hmm. that uh, caused the 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 havoc, and we have to do everything we can to uh, you know correct it now." Uh, that's kind of when I saw Frozen too. That's kind of what I thought of. It was her grandfather. And all she had to do was break the dam. That was it. Everything was good. <laughs> the reality is though, uh, you know, it, that um, the opportunity for the Bible to stand on its own at Museum of the Bible, it creates a place where it's non-evangelical. It's not about prophesying and say, hey, now you have to accept Christ. They're actually opening their doors and they're finding that, you know, not only Christians come there, but, you know, whether it's Christians or Catholics, but then Jewish, Muslim, atheists. Come there to check out. Okay. So what is this about? And it actually allows a dialogue to happen. And when I look at the way Jesus did ministry, you know, he didn't always go up there. You know, everyone says, okay, repent and be baptized. You know, that was John right. the Baptist. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but, but the idea that he came alongside different people. And I think, uh, Colossians four, five, six tells us that, you know, you, you know, speak with wisdom towards outsiders. And I think, uh, when we work with different organizations, there are times to share our faith with them, but there are times when our actions speak louder than words. And really, that's what what they're looking at so even within our organization, uh, you know, we're, we're you know, I ha- I carry my faith very strongly. There are people who are not believers in our studio, though, um, you know, and we don't hold anything against them. And if anything, I'd say they hold us to a higher standard right. because you know, even when it comes to, like to software licensing, they want to make sure like, hey, you're you're you guys are compliant, right? You're, you're not doing any software pirating, right? <laughs> and it is, and it, and it's it's amazing how many times and they look at other people with a label of Christian that says, oh, just give us a copy of that song or just use that or. Just you know, plagiarize that. That's okay. And to them it's okay because they're they're doing it for the church, but but the it's the non believers that actually cause this to stand out. But I always just try and make sure I'm aware of the opportunities to share my faith and uh to do it in love. And you know, I, I definitely am one Uh, not to, you know, I, I, Chuck Boer is my, uh, he's our senior pastor. Now he was my youth pastor back when I was, uh, um, uh, in, in, uh, junior high, high school and stuff like that. And I think he, he taught me a a phrase back then or not a phrase or just a value in work. And cause I, I couldn't sing, I'm not a speaker. I really don't like doing stuff like this, but, uh, I remember talking to him once about the worship team and just, you know, expressing, you know that, and how do we, yeah, I'm not an evangelist and stuff. And he, he said, man, Peter, your work is your worship. Mm-hmm. And how I work and how I re- reflect that is how I worship and bring glory to God and, and those things. So that's something that's really always struck with me. So I even look at how I share my faith. Um, it, it is, uh, make, you know, how do I honor, you know, my family? How do I honor my wife? And how do I talk about them and celebrate those things? How do I honor my God? I try to keep those in line, if that makes sense.
0: Now, if there's a woman listening right now, she's like, okay, I'm a stay home mom or I'm single or something. I am not creative whatsoever. And I would like to be more creative. What do you tell her?
1: Oh, man. (laughs) What can she do?
0: Uh, uh, Is there something she can do? (laughs) Yeah.
1: uh, yeah, You know what? I think. women especially if they're stay-at-home moms I mean there, there's creativity all around them I think most of them Yeah, and that's what strikes me I think most of them are really creative because you have to be flexible with the changing dynamics of you know the health of your kids and the activities that they're in how do you juggle things I, I think the biggest uh, thing I would encourage them is is that, that idea of seeking fellowship uh, discipleship having mentors uh, and being plugged into community is the biggest thing because the I'd say with the stay-at-home moms specifically or even just women in in, in general or in even men I think culturally we've become so disconnected and we try to be independent mm-hmm. and I am where I am today because the the you know the community around me not not to be coy about the you know it takes a village to raise people but I think God God's plan was that but I would just encourage them to collaborate work with other people like you know help other moms um, or or anything they can do that, and then to, to to serve serve like you need to be served. Um, but yeah, I don't know but about. I mean, is there's like books they can read, uh, websites, blogs they can do
0: to go <laughs> to learn. Oh, I can, I can start you know creating uh, stuff. And, and...
1: Uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> offhand, uh, like my, my things are pretty random, uh, but uh. I would say start with the Enneagram. I think being – Enneagram. Yeah. Start with yourself and understand what motivates you because um, (coughs) –
0: That's very good. Because
1: the idea of creativity is very personal. Um, and, and, you know, when you – so we're a licensed architectural firm. Uh, architects during the Renaissance, they were not just the building makers. They made the furniture. They did the sculptures. They did a lot of different things. Leonardo uh, da Vinci was, you know, pretty broad. Same thing with moms. I think, you know, inherently they do a lot of different things. But they need to understand themselves first, I think, mm-hmm. and their ability to, you know, get along either with their husbands and their kids and everything like that. But I would start with the Enneagram first and then branch out from there. And I think understanding your own unique personality will inherently cause you to be creative and, and creativity for creativity sake is, I mean, it's divergent thinking. It's thinking outside the norm. So I think knowing that, you know, you can't just always copy what everyone else is doing. one of my, I have a, you know, there's a funny, uh, pastor story out there Go ahead. about the uh, young couple gets married. The husband walks in and the young wife is get, sitting there getting ready to uh, uh, cut the turkey to stuff it. and She just cuts the turkey in half <laughs> and he's like, what the heck are you, what are you doing? And, uh, and she's like, well, I'm getting the turkey ready. This is the way my mom taught me. And he's like, that's the craziest thing. So her mom comes over later in the day and, uh, she asked her mom, Hey mom, why do we cut the turkey in half? Like, uh, to stuff it? And she's like, I don't know. That's the way grandma taught me. And then if, you know, a little bit later, grandma comes over for dinner. And she goes, Grandma, why do we cut the turkey in half? And she goes, Oh, in 1945, the turkey wouldn't fit in the oven unless we cut it in half. Oh. <laughs> and, it was so, like, yeah. and it was just like, you know, we, we copy things and we do these things thinking that that's what will be helpful. It's, oh, so and so does it. And that's, you know, I'll just keep doing that. But the reality is understanding what motivates you, what, you know, what works for you, uh, is really the best thing that you can do. And I would say the most important thing with creativity is just, you know, not doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, because that, you know, that's the definition of insanity.
0: I appreciate your time, and I know your time is very valuable, so I'm going to cut it short to, yeah. to let, get you back. But let's say you are in a, you're doing a design work, and you're there with a big executive from Disney who's not a Christian, not at all. Yeah. You know, he they know how good your work is. They know what it How would you share Jesus with them? And you have that two minutes to talk to them. Well,
1: I mean, honestly, my my first thing is is to pray for God to open the door. And a real example is basically um, is uh, it wasn't a super high level person within uh, the Disney company, but it was just acting with integrity, acting with faith, um, words, you know. Uh words are one thing actions are another and just trying to be kind uh, and, and loving to them not judgmental because i don't know where they have been and uh and later on after that meeting closed out and the doors were shut uh you know they they approach us and says hey You know, do you have time to talk later and actually dive deeper? Because it was actually a more sensitive thing. And then what ended up happening is another executive came up to us that was a believer and was like, man, they've been like waiting for years and been praying for this to happen or just opportunities to open up. But, you know, I think being sensitive to the calling of the spirit is really for me, uh, my, my biggest thing. Um, I'm not an evangelist. I know there are some people who have that kind of bold faith that they just start sharing it. Um, and, (laughs) and God bless you. That, that's the thing. But again, that's that create divergent thinking. It's like, I, but with that said, there are times when I'm sitting on an airplane and I feel like I'm sitting next, and I've sat next to an executive before and, and, and it, God compels me to put on my heart, hey, so what's your church background? And then I'll start sharing, uh, through that. Cause that's actually a relatively uh, safe question of what their church background is. And they go, I have none or I hate church or whatever oh. it is. Um, and God has put that on my heart. And, uh, and yeah, there have been times in, when I've been sitting in meetings and, yeah, I'll feel that nudge on it and, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll lean into that, but that's definitely, you know, you know, case by case basis. That's awesome. Hey,
0: you know, uh, I appreciate your time. Plain Joe is amazing. If you're an, a business owner or if you're a, a nonprofit, uh, executive or, or even, you know, go into Plain Joe website and see all the great things that they do and, different different from design to the your entire building or entire company and design to websites to other stuff that they do so what is the website they can go to
1: yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, so uh, plainjoestudios.com Plain Studios dot com is uh, is our main one, especially faith based stuff. Uh, on the theme entertainment side of things, and kind of more museum work is, is Storyland Studios.
0: Storyland uh, yeah, Studios. And yeah. now you were uh, you were working on a project. You went to Israel, mm-hmm. and you guys had cameras, special mm-hmm. cameras. And you did this. Tell us quickly about so, it or where can people yeah, watch yeah. that?
1: Yeah. So uh, actually at the Museum of the Bible, we have a virtual reality experience, uh, the lands of the Bible. Oh, it you guys you did through. that for yeah. the
0: Museum of the Bible? Yeah. 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 Wow. So, so, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, okay. Nice. So when they go to the museum and you see that, uh, real life experience into mm-hmm. that's the work of, uh, Pete McGowan and his team. Yeah, well,
1: it was, it was bigger than that. That's yeah, bigger. there's a, a, a group called Over uh, OVRX. OVR. Uh, yeah, they, they're the guys we teamed up with to help pull the technology pieces and everything like that yeah. together. But uh, And then it was a partnership with Museum of the Bible to help pull that. Last, was qu- great.
0: last question. Yeah. What's the trendiest color right now today?
1: Well, what's the trendiest what? Color. Color? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's black. It's always black. It's no, always black. It's That's always my, black my favorite. Now, yeah. Well,
0: you thank know. you so much. Thank you because so much. Because it doesn't for really matter the color.
1: It's it's what your story. What story? <laughs>
0: okay, that's true. That's true. Don't okay. be trendy. Don't. Be trendy. So, thank you guys so much for listening, and thank you, Pete, for being with us, Pete McGowan, Plain Show Studios, and. Uh, you know, uh, next week, I'm going to be in Hawaii. I will be trying to have a podcast with uh, Jensen Franklin, John Bevere, uh, Phil Laboratory and Bob Harrison. So we'll be doing so. We might not go live on Monday, but we will be recording this and putting them on Facebook and others. If you're listening and you enjoy these things, you know, please go to laughterforallpodcast.com or uh, just on any, on any podcast, uh, channel just subscribe to laughter for all podcast i'm comedian nazareth please until next week find something keep laughing you know don't don't shake hands with people just elbow them right now because the corona thing but uh love you guys thank you and we'll see you later